So many unscripted moments. Oh, I love it, especially when it's not my kid. I love it. So much fun. Social media. I'm glad there was no social media when I was a kid. Right, Walt? <laughs> oh, only a few people have to know about our stuff. Man, that, this is what Christmas time is all about, right? I love having the, the kids singing, and uh, I was talking to Tito earlier, the 50-plus event uh, this past Wednesday, we're just singing the Christmas carols. What a blast. That's just uh, probably one of the best things that's happened so far this Christmas season. I, 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 I love the season. I know the season isn't for everybody, and uh, particularly if you're going through um, some, some issues, maybe relationship issues, or maybe you're grieving, this can be such a hard time. But um, man, there, uh, I just encourage you to let some joy seep in at moments, uh, if, if that's even able to happen. Um, we have been in a series over the last couple of weeks where we've been talking about the enemies of Christmas. And today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and I really encourage you to look this up for yourselves in a minute. We'll start out in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and uh, some of the, the enemies that, that we've covered, uh, I, I, think, I think what we're going to be talking about today is kind of a sneaky enemy. It's one that you might not put on the list, but it is an enemy that can affect all of us, no matter how long you've been following Christ, no matter what kind of uh, traditions you've been a part of. Today, we're going to talk about the enemy of apathy. The enemy of apathy. And apathy is kind of a fancy word that basically means a lack of interest or concern. A lack of interest or concern. There's a word, especially a couple decades ago, it was popular. And, and this is, in one singular word, we can sum up the idea of apathy. And it's the word, whatever. Whatever. Turn to the person next to you and just say, whatever. Whatever. Apathy can be summed up in the word whatever. And, and apathy actually is a, it's an interesting word because pa, uh, apathy, pathos, is a word that we get passion from. And like empathy, right, is the idea of pathos. But a is to take that away. So it's without passion. It's just a, a life that you just kind of walk through without passion, without interest, without concern. And we're going to look at the apathy that we see in the Christmas account uh, in Matthew chapter 2. This is the same account that we looked at last week, but this week we're going to take a different perspective. So beginning in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. So just going to pause right there. King Herod was an incredibly astute man. He was incredibly shrewd and intelligent, and he was horrific. He did horrible, horrible things. He had a wife killed. He had a mother-in-law killed. He had a brother killed. He had two of his sons killed. Last week, we talked about Caesar Augustus said that it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. I mean, this was a ruthless, ruthless man. And Jesus is born during the reign of King Herod. It says, about that time... Some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, and this is a question that they roll into town asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Where is he? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. This is so interesting that these foreigners, most likely they have journeyed at least 100 miles. There's from, they're basically Eastern kingmakers, men of extreme affluence, of extreme position. They come rolling into town and they ask the question, where is this new king of the Jews, this newborn king of the Jews? 
Verse three, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked them this question, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So King Herod, and and again, I don't want to get too nerdy in this and get into too much history, but King Herod, even though uh, he was not a Jew, he had been put in place by the Roman Empire to be the king of that whole region that included the people of, of Jewish ancestry. And so he was known, at least by the Romans, the Jews probably didn't necessarily call him this unless they were forced to, but he was known by the Romans as the king of the Jews because in fact, he was the king of the Jews. So here you have King Herod, whose title has been the king of the Jews for quite some time. Now he hears that there's a newborn king of the Jews, and even though he isn't Jewish, he knows enough of the Jewish faith, he knows enough of the Jewish scriptures to know that the Jewish people had been, in fact, anticipating and expecting the arrival of someone that they referred to as Messiah. Messiah, this is a word that in the Greek we get the word Christ from, or anointed one. So the Jewish people for centuries had been looking forward to a Messiah who was coming, and King Herod is shrewd enough to connect the dots and ask the question, is this newborn king of the Jews the Messiah that the Jewish prophets had foretold would come? And if it is, I need to snuff him out as quickly as possible. So in verse four, he calls a meeting of two groups of people, And you'll see them right there. The first group is the chief priests. The chief priests were the the direct descendants of Aaron. And if you know Jewish history or you know your Old Testament Bible knowledge, you'll know that Aaron was the brother, or yeah, he was the brother of Moses. He was the original, the very first high priest in Israel. So these chief priests that King Herod calls to him, I mean, they have this long lineage and and really a, a history By the time of King Herod, the chief priests had gained considerable political and religious power. They had a lot of influence, and they had a lot riding on what was about to happen. The second group of people that King Herod calls to meet with him are the teachers of the law. And these were authorities on Jewish law, scriptures, and traditions. They had also gained influence, and they were used to being consulted in very important matters. These guys were used to being like in the seat of power. They were used to being called in for very important matters. And so when King Herod calls in the chief priests and the teachers of the law, these are individuals who know immediately when he starts asking a question about the Messiah, where's the Messiah born? They know all the information about Messiah. They know what the prophet had foretold about the birth of the Messiah. And so they immediately reach back into their memory banks to the prophecy of Micah, and they quote Micah. This is Micah chapter five, verse two. It says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is always a great thing to say if you have a lisp, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, Yet a ruler of Israel, and that's going to be an important term. If you have a paper Bible in front of you, you can even underline that phrase. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. These high priests and these teachers of the law knew that the prophet spoke of a literal, personal Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem. They knew all kinds of facts and information about the predicted Messiah. 
But for them, the Messiah was someone to be studied rather than a personal savior to be sought after. And this is really key. To this day, there are people who will walk around that are very religious. They know all the right answers. And yet for them, God or Jesus or the Holy Bible is something to be studied rather than something to be sought after, rather than a person to seek after with your lifetime. When the Magi came rolling into town claiming to see a star that was a sign of the Messiah's birth, the religious leader showed hardly any interest. They were apathetic about the whole thing. In fact, maybe you're wondering, well, just how far is it from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? If you look at your maps in the back of your Bible, and you do a little bit of math with your maps, what you'll find is the distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem would have been about five or six miles. Basically, that's 10,000 steps. It would have taken them 10,000 steps to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. You would have thought that at least curiosity would have caused them to go after this Messiah to see if the Magi had been telling the truth. But instead, again, they are absolutely indifferent to the Messiah. So why is this? And I think there's probably a lot of different answers that we could give. I've been chewing on this for the last couple of weeks, just wondering why wouldn't they take the time to go see the Messiah? Especially when you compare the passion of the Magi. I mean, here are guys who had traveled at least 100 miles. Some believe they traveled even hundreds of miles people who weren't Jewish, who didn't have a Jewish faith, and yet there was something about the Messiah that drove them to bring their treasures and their resources and their time and their energy to seek after the Messiah. And here are the chief priests and the teachers of the law who can't even walk 10,000 steps. Why is that? Why wouldn't they take the trip? And, And I can sum it up with maybe three reasons. Maybe you would have additional reasons. But these are three reasons, and, and I think these three reasons resonate. That here in 2023, these could be reasons why some of us in this room are still apathetic about seeking and following after Jesus. The first reason has to do with comfort. Comfort. Would you say that with me? Comfort. Comfort is a powerful deterrent that keeps us from taking moves. Part of the prophecy that the chief priests and teachers of the law quoted, and this was from the ancient prophet Micah, had stated this, and we read it earlier, but I want to I go back to it. It says, a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. And the question I have is, did they actually want a ruler? Did they want a ruler? It, it, it could be that I'm being too hard on them. That could be. But I think they had developed a pretty comfortable position in Jerusalem. They'd gotten pretty cozy with King Herod and with his administration. They finally had a seat at the table of power and they didn't want to disrupt that. Life was going pretty well for them. See, here's a thought. You can't be the ruler and go see the ruler. You can't be the one who is calling the shots and go to see one who might be the one to call the shots in your life. Did they want a ruler? Sometimes we are apathetic about seeking Jesus because we're comfortable and we don't feel like being ruled by a ruler. I don't want anybody else telling me what I should do with my life. 
I don't, want out, I don't want someone telling me how I should live. I don't want someone telling me where I should go or what I should say or what I should do. And here's the thing, when we turn to Jesus and we confess our sin and we confess that we've made a wreck of trying to live our lives for ourselves and we say, Jesus, I am broken and helpless and powerless. I'm sin-stained and sin-covered. I need you, Jesus, to come into my life. It's not enough just to ask him to forgive us of our sins. Part of the deal is saying, I confess that you are Lord. Lord is a, is a word that has all kinds of connotations in our culture, but essentially, Lord can be translated master. Not only am I asking you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins, but I am asking you to be the master of my life, to call the shots of my life. I will go where you tell me to go, and I will say what you tell me to say, and I will do what you ask me to do. I not only want you to forgive me and save me from my sins, I want you to be totally in charge of my life. And if you're comfortable, that's a hard thing to do. They were comfortable. I think it's part of the reason why they didn't have the time to go see the newborn king of the Jews. Number two, maybe a second reason is fear. Maybe one of the reasons why they didn't go to see this newborn king of the Jews is just fear. If King Herod caught wind that they were going to see the newborn king of the Jews, I imagine things probably wouldn't have gone so well for them. Maybe they were afraid of Herod. But you know, I don't even just think that it might be a fear of Herod. I think maybe they were afraid of each other. Groupthink is a powerful emotion. We, when I was growing up, we called this peer pressure, right? But can I tell you, groupthink and peer pressure are not just reserved for middle school and high school. They're alive and well in our culture today. And it's so easy when there's a conviction inside of you, when there's an impulse, when there's a sense, and you know it's not just from your selfishness, but it's a, it's a whisper of the Holy Spirit, it's a prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's so easy to say no to that prompting because I'm afraid of what people will think. I'm afraid of the opinions of other people. Maybe it feels weird. Maybe I don't want people to get the wrong idea about me. And so I think for a lot of us, fear can keep us from seeking the Messiah. It can keep us from seeking the Savior because we're just not sure what does this mean? Going back to the comfort thing, what is he gonna ask of me? And so fear can be a powerful, powerful emotion. Here's the third thing, you know, beyond comfort and fear, I think it's an issue of priority. Priority. Maybe they meant to go and see, but they just never got around to it. Maybe their schedule was too hectic. The whole scene just passed them by. You know, so many of us have good intentions. But can I just tell you this, and I don't mean to be crass, God could give a flying rip about your good intentions. Good intentions never build anything. What God cares about is what are you actually doing with the revelation that he's given you? What have you actually done with the message of the good news that you've heard? Not I've got good intentions, but what have you actually done with it? How are you actually responding to Jesus? I was reading a book last night. I'm literally just about to go to bed and I've got this book. I started it last night, so I'm not even gonna like, give an endorsement of it, but on page nine, 
as I start this book, as yeah, I know, that's mega reading, right? It's a, it, I mean, I, I'll tell you in a couple weeks, or it's a short book, so maybe I could tell you in a couple days. Mind Shift by Erwin McManus. He says this, I, I really thought this was right in line with, with the sermon. He says, most of us not only avoid near-death experiences, we avoid near-life experiences as well. We almost risk for love. We almost pursue our dreams. We almost overcome our fears. We almost live the life we long for. We almost make the decision that would have changed everything. And then we get to the end of our lives and realize that we were so close. We were always just one choice away. See, I wonder, there's part of me that wonders out of this great group of chief priests and the teachers of the religious law, I got to imagine there was someone in the group that had the impulse. And maybe they were able to get over the issue of of comfort. Maybe they were even able to get past the issue of fear, but, but sometimes, you know, it's just this, well, I have good intentions. I want to. Maybe when nobody else is looking, maybe that'll be a moment that I'll go and pursue this new savior. Are we actually making Jesus the Lord of our lives or do we just keep wanting to go back to life as normal? So here we are and the question becomes, what have you done with the revelation that God has given you of who Jesus is? And you say, well, who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of God, come to earth to become one of us. And he taught and he performed miracles and he healed people. But ultimately the point of Jesus' life here on earth was to voluntarily of his own accord, he could have gotten out of it at any time, that he wasn't just born in a major, but at the age of 33 or whatever age you think he was, I know there's some debate on it, that he allowed himself to carry a cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he was nailed to this cross and hoisted up naked and publicly embarrassed and shamed. And on that cross that he took upon himself the curse of my sin and your sin. He took upon himself the punishment of our sin. And he died on that cross. And he was put in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he was resurrected from the grave, proving his power and his authority once and for all. And that here we are in the year 2023 and in our helplessness and our powerlessness and our brokenness and our sin that we can look up and we can say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Based on your death and resurrection, based on you being the son of God, would you come and not only cleanse me of my sins and forgive me of my sins, would you become the master and the leader and the Lord of my life? Would you be the one in charge of my life? Can I tell you today, I see similar reactions. Some people say, "Ah, I'm comfortable where I am. Maybe someday when life is different, maybe then I'll say yes. Maybe then I'll go seeking after a savior. But right now I'm good, I'm good. I'm not as bad as the person sitting next to me or as the person sitting in front of me or behind me. Like, life, I, I've got life, I've got it, I've got it. Yeah, there's times, but I, I've, I'm pretty good, I, I'm comfortable. Maybe the barrier is fear. What's gonna happen? What's God gonna ask of me? 
I have a friend, he used to say, I, if I become a Christian, he's gonna ask me to go be a missionary in Africa. I said, here's the thing, God always changes your affections. He always changes your desires. He's not gonna ask you to do something that is totally contrary to the affections and desires that he's put inside of you. He'll, he'll change those desires. Maybe there's a fear. Maybe there's a fear of what he's gonna ask of you. Maybe there's a fear of what will people think? I don't wanna be a holy roller. I don't wanna go all in. What am I gonna miss out on? Can I, t I, so many people are afraid of what they miss out on. I've gotta tell you, there's testimonies all over this room of people who are afraid of what they were gonna miss out on. And then they became a follower of Jesus and they realized the stuff that they thought they were gonna miss out on was actually holding them captive to begin with that what they gained was purpose and freedom and joy and a love like no other. Maybe for you, it's been an issue of good intentions. Almost, I almost responded. I almost prayed that prayer. I almost, and I can tell you so many times, it's 25 years of being a pastor, I've been at the deathbeds of so many individuals. Can I tell you, often the biggest regret is the almost. It's not the thing that I did that I wish I wouldn't have done. It's the thing that I never did that I wish I would have done. It's the almost. I almost said yes. I almost went all in for Jesus. So can I just ask, what about you this morning? Which group of people would you find yourself in? Last week we talked about the wise men, the magi. The ones who, I mean, went to great lengths to seek after the Savior. And they saw him. They found him and they saw him. And it was worth it all. It was worth it all. Or maybe this morning, truth be told, you're more like the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And your attitude has really been one of whatever. Whatever, I gotta go to church again, whatever. He's gonna preach the same sermon they always preach, whatever. Another Christmas song. I'm kind of with you on some of the Christmas song stuff, but. I'm gonna ask right where you're sitting, would you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment? I believe that every person here is here because God called you here. He brought you here. You say, no, 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 no. I'm here because my wife dragged me here or my kids begged me to come or my parents forced me. <laughs> no, you're here because God drew you here. And this is a holy moment and this isn't about you becoming a member of Journey Church. Honestly, you can make this choice and never step foot in this church again and that's fine as long as you find a community of Jesus followers that you can worship with. It's not about journey. It's not about our denomination. This is an issue between you and God. Have you humbled yourself and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to be the master and leader and Lord of your life, to call the shots in your life, to be the one in charge? Have you committed to going where he asks you to go and to say what he asks you to say and to do what he asks of you to do? Have you gone, have you gone all in with him? And if you haven't this morning, you can do that. 
right where you're sitting, under your breath, you can say, Jesus, have mercy on me, forgive me. Maybe you've been following him in the past, but your recent history has been one of you taking back the reins of your life, calling the shots of your life, that Jesus has not in actuality been the Lord and the master of your life. But this morning, you feel the pull, you feel the tug, and you wanna say yes to him again. We're not gonna embarrass you, I'm not gonna have you stand, we're not gonna ask you to come to the front, but if that's you this morning, you say, I need to seek Jesus again, or I need to seek Jesus for the first time, I need his forgiveness, I need him to be in charge of my life, to be the master and leader of my life. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I wanna pray for you. Yeah, I see you. I see you back there, I see you right there, I see you. I see you, I see you. I see you back there, I see you back there. I see you and you. I see you over there. Who else would say that's me? I see you back there. After you've raised your hand, you can lower it. Anybody else? So many hands. I see you right there, yeah. Anybody else that would say this is me? Such a holy moment, right where you're sitting. If you raise your hand, or maybe, maybe you almost raised your hand. God sees you. Under your breath, would you just pray, Jesus? I believe you are the Son of God that you died on the cross and you rose from the grave and you have the power that I need in my life. Forgive me of my sin. I need you to call the shots of my life. I need you to be in control. I need you to be the master of my life. Empower me to follow you. Lead me, and I will follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, can I just tell you, so many hands went up. I just want you to know that we want to do everything as a church to come alongside you and help you in actually, actively following Jesus. Some of the ways that maybe we could help you is, first of all, the Connect cards that I mentioned at the beginning of the service. If you would pull that blue Connect card out, on the bottom of that Connect card, there's a place where you can check that you're starting a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you're reaffirming a relationship with Christ. If you check that, maybe you're interested in baptism. Again, baptism is the first thing that early followers of Jesus in the Bible did after they became followers of Jesus. Maybe you were baptized as a baby. Can I just tell you, that was an awesome, incredible thing between your parents and God but you were just along for the ride, literally, right? There's something about as an adult or as a teenager, when you have come to the decision of following Christ for yourself, there's something about following the example of Jesus who as an adult was himself baptized and who commanded his followers to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't been baptized on that, you can check that box. We'd love to get you more information and talk to you more about that. That's gonna be the first Sunday of the new year. It'd be a great time to do that. Also, I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come up at this time. And as everybody leaves in a few moments, they would love to pray with you. Some of you are going through, this is a dark time for so many people. Sometimes you just need someone, you just need to go, hey, I don't even know what I'm feeling right now, but I need somebody to pray for me. You know, it's okay. It's okay to be there. It's okay to say, I don't even know 
but I know I need somebody to pray for me. I, can I tell you there's been times in my life where I've needed that. And I'm so grateful that I've had people that I could go to and just say, I don't even know, but I need prayer. We would love to pray for you. Maybe there's something specific going on in your life and you need someone to agree with you. Maybe a family member is going through something and you just need somebody to agree with you. We would love, love, love to pray for you. And then as you leave, we have some good looking people, not only with the white buckets taking your connect cards, but also some individuals handing out the invite cards for Christmas Eve. Can I tell you, it's amazing what God can do with an invite. So you never know. And I'm just gonna ask you, take that card. Don't throw it away immediately. Stick it in your pocket, stick it in a wallet, in your purse. And I'm just gonna pray it. I'm praying over you. You can pray this for yourself. God, show me somebody this week that I can invite. Maybe it's somebody you know. Maybe it's a stranger in a grocery store. Somebody that you can invite. And I dare you to invite someone. You never know how you can change the trajectory of somebody's life through a simple invite. So would you stand to your feet? This Christmas season, may you defeat the enemy of apathy. May you go beyond comfort and fear and the almost, and may you follow Jesus wholeheartedly. God bless you, Lord willing, we'll see you on Christmas Eve. If not, have a Merry Christmas. God bless you guys.